Chapter Twenty One of the Professor. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Professor, by Charlotte Bronte, Chapter Twenty One. Directly as I closed the door, I saw laid on the table two letters. My thought was that they were notes of invitation from the friends of some of my pupils. I had received such marks of attention occasionally, and with me, who had no friends, correspondence of more interest was out of the question. The postman's arrival had never yet been an event of interest to me since I came to Brussels. I laid my hand carelessly on the documents, and coldly and slowly glancing at them, I prepared to break the seals. My eye was arrested, and my hand too. I saw what excited me, as if I had found a vivid picture where I expected only to discover a blank page. On one cover was an English postmark, on the other a lady's clear, fine autograph. The last I opened first. Monsieur, I found out what you had done the very morning after your visit to me. You might be sure I should dust the china every day and as no one but you had been in my room for a week and as fairy money is not current in brussels i could not doubt who left the twenty francs on the chimney-piece i thought i heard you stir the vase when i was stooping to look for your glove under the table and i wondered you should imagine it had got into such a little cup now monsieur the money is not mine and i shall not keep it i will not send it in this note because it might be lost besides it is heavy but I will restore it to you the first time I see you, and you must make no difficulties about taking it. Because, in the first place, I am sure, monsieur, you can understand that one likes to pay one's debts, that it is satisfactory to owe no man anything, and, in the second place, I can now very well afford to be honest, as I am provided with the situation. This last circumstance is, indeed, the reason of my writing to you, for it is pleasant to communicate good news and in these days i have only my master to whom i can tell anything a week ago monsieur i was sent for by a mrs Wharton, an english lady her eldest daughter was going to be married and some rich relation having made her a present of a veil and dress in costly old lace as precious they said almost as jewels but a little damaged by time i was commissioned to put them in repair i had to do it at the house they gave me, besides, some embroidery to complete, and nearly a week elapsed before I had finished everything. While I worked, Miss Wharton often came into the room and sat with me, and so did Mrs. Wharton. They made me talk English, asked how I had learned to speak it so well. Then they inquired what I knew besides, what books I had read. Soon they seemed to make a sort of wonder of me, considering me no doubt as a learned grisette, one afternoon mrs wharton brought in a parisian lady to test the accuracy of my knowledge of french the result of it was that owing probably in a great degree to the mother's and daughter's good humour about the marriage which inclined them to do beneficent deeds and partly i think because they are naturally benevolent people they decided that the wish i had expressed to do something more than men lace was a very legitimate one and the same day they took me in their carriage to mrs d's who is the directress of the first English school at Brussels. It seems she happened to be in want of a French lady to give lessons in geography, history, 
grammar and composition in the French language. Mrs. Whiten recommended me very warmly, and, as two of her younger daughters are pupils in the house, her patronage availed to get me the place. It was settled that I am to attend six hours daily, for, happily, it was not required that I should live in the house. I should have been sorry to leave my lodgings. And, for this, Mrs. D. will give me twelve hundred francs per annum. You see, therefore, monsieur, that I am now rich, richer almost than I ever hoped to be. I feel thankful for it, especially as my sight was beginning to be injured by constant working at fine lace, and I was getting, too, very weary of sitting up late at nights, and yet not being able to find time for reading or study. I began to fear that I should fall ill, and be unable to pay my way. This fear is now, in a great measure, removed, and, in truth, monsieur, I am very grateful to God for the relief, and I feel it necessary, almost, to speak of my happiness to some one who is kind-hearted enough to derive joy from seeing others joyful. I could not, therefore, resist the temptation of writing to you. I argued with myself it is very pleasant for me to write, and it will not be exactly painful, though it may be tiresome to monsieur to read. Do not be too angry with my circumlocution and inelegancies of expression, and, believe me, your attached pupil, F. E. Henry. Having read this letter, I mused on its contents for a few moments, whether with sentiments pleasurable or otherwise, I will hereafter note, and then took up the other. It was directed in a hand to me unknown, small and rather neat, neither masculine nor exactly feminine. The seal bore a coat of arms, concerning which I could only decipher that it was not that of the Seacombe family. Consequently the epistle could be from none of my almost forgotten, and certainly quite forgetting, patrician relations. From whom, then, was it? I removed the envelope. The note folded within ran as follows. I have no doubt in the world that you are doing well in that greasy Flanders, living probably on the fat of the unctuous land sitting like a black-haired, tawny-skinned, long-nosed Israelite by the flesh-pots of Egypt, or like a rascally son of Levi near the brass cauldrons of the sanctuary, and every now and then plunging in a consecrated hook and drawing out of the sea of broth the fattest of heaved shoulders and the fleshiest of waved breasts. I know this because you never write to anyone in England. Thankless dog that you are! I, by the sovereign efficacy of my recommendation, got you the place where you are now living in clover, and yet not a word of gratitude or even acknowledgement have you ever offered in return. But I am coming to see you, and small conception can you, with your adult aristocratic brains, form of the sort of moral kicking I have, ready packed in my carpet-bag, destined to be presented to you immediately on my arrival. Meantime I know all about your affairs, and I have just got information, by Brown's last letter, that you are said to be on the point of forming an advantageous match with the pursy little Belgian schoolmistress, a Mademoiselle Zenobi, or some such name. Won't I have a look at her when I come over? And this you may rely on. If she pleases my taste, or if I think it worth while in a pecuniary point of view, I'll pounce on your prize and bear her away triumphant in spite of your teeth. Yet I don't like dumpies either, and Brown says she is little and stout, the better fitted for a wiry, starved-looking chap like you. Be on the lookout, for you know neither the day nor hour when you're blank. 
I don't wish to blaspheme, so I'll leave a blank. Commit. Yours truly, Hunston York Hunston. Humph, said I, and here I laid the letter down. I again glanced at the small, neat handwriting, not a bit like that of a mercantile man, nor, indeed, of any man except Hunsden himself. They talk of affinities between the autograph and the character. What affinity was there here? I recall the writer's peculiar face and certain traits I suspected, rather than knew, to appertain to his nature, and I answered, a great deal. Hunston, then, was coming to Brussels, and coming I know not when, coming charged with the expectation of finding me on the summit of prosperity, about to be married, to step into a warm nest, to lie comfortably down by the side of a snug, well-fed little mate. I wish him joy of the fidelity of the picture he has painted, thought I. What will he say when, instead of a pair of plump turtle-doves, billing and cooing in a bower of roses, he finds a single lean cormorant, standing mateless and shelterless on poverty's bleak cliff? Oh, confound him! Let him come, and let him laugh at the contrast between rumour and fact. Were he the devil himself, instead of being merely very like him, I had not condescend to get out of his way, or to forge a smile or a cheerful word wherewith to avert his sarcasm. Then I record to the other letter. That struck a chord whose sound I could not deaden by thrusting my fingers into my ears, for it vibrated within. And though its swell might be exquisite music, its cadence was a groan. That Frances was relieved from the pressure of want, that the curse of excessive labour was taken off her, filled me with happiness, that her first thought in prosperity should be to augment her joy by sharing it with me, met and satisfied the wish of my heart. Two results of a letter were then pleasant, sweet as two draughts of nectar, but applying my lips for the third time to the cup, and they were excoriated as with vinegar and gall. Two persons whose desires are moderate may live well enough in Brussels on an income which would scarcely afford respectable maintenance for one in London, and that, not because the necessaries of life are so much dearer in the latter capital, or taxes so much higher than in the former, but because the English surpass in folly all the nations on God's earth, and are more abject slaves to custom, to opinion, to the desire to keep up a certain appearance, than the Italians are to priestcraft, the French to vain glory, the Russians to their Tsar, or the Germans to black beer. I have seen a degree of sense in the modest arrangement of one homely Belgian household that might put to shame the elegance, the superfluities, the luxuries, the strained refinements of a hundred genteel English mansions. In Belgium, provided you can make money, you may save it. This is scarcely possible in England. Ostentation there lavishes in a month what industry has earned in a year. More shame to all classes in that most bountiful and beggarly country for their servile following of fashion. I could write a chapter or two on the subject, but must forbear, at least for the present. Had I retained my sixty pounds per annum, I could, now that Frances was in possession of fifty pounds, have gone straight to her this very evening, and spoken out the words which, repressed, kept fretting my heart with fever. Our united income would, as we should have managed it, have sufficed well for our mutual support, since we lived in a country where economy was not confounded with meanness, where frugality in dress, food, and furniture was not synonymous with vulgarity in these various points. 
but the placeless usher, bare of resource and unsupported by connections, must not think of this. Such a sentiment as love, such a word as marriage, were misplaced in his heart and on his lips. Now for the first time did I truly feel what it was to be poor. Now did the sacrifice I had made in casting from me the means of living put on a new aspect. Instead of a correct, just, honourable act, it seemed a deed at once light and fanatical. I took several turns in my room, under the goading influence of most poignant remorse. I walked a quarter of an hour from the wall to the window, and at the window self-reproach seemed to face me, at the wall self-disdain. All at once outspoke conscience. Down, stupid tormentors, cried she, the man has done his duty. You shall not bait him thus by thoughts of what might have been. He relinquished a temporary and contingent good to avoid a permanent and certain evil he did well. Let him reflect now, and when your blinding dust and deafening hum subside, he will discover a path. I sat down. I propped my forehead on both my hands. I thought and thought an hour, two hours, vainly. I seem like one sealed in a subterranean vault who gazes at utter blackness, at blackness ensured by yard-thick stone walls around and by piles of building above, expecting light to penetrate through granite and through cement firm as granite. But there are chinks, or there may be chinks, in the best adjusted masonry. There was a chink in my cavernous cell, for, eventually, I saw, or seemed to see, a ray, pallid, indeed, and cold, and doubtful, but still a ray, for it showed that narrow path which conscience had promised after two, three hours torturing research in brain and memory, I disinterred certain remains of circumstances, and conceived a hope that by putting them together an expedient might be framed, and a resource discovered. The circumstances were briefly these. Some three months ago, M. Pilet had, on the occasion of his feet, given the boys a treat, which treat consisted in a party of pleasure, to a certain place of public resort in the outskirts of Brussels, of which I do not at this moment remember the name. But near it were several of those lakelets, called etangs, and there was one etang, larger than the rest, where on holidays people were accustomed to amuse themselves by rowing round it in little boats. The boys having eaten an unlimited quantity of golfers, and drank several bottles of Louvain beer, amid the shades of a garden made and provided for such cramps, petitioned the director for leave to take a row on the etang. Half a dozen of the eldest succeeded in obtaining leave, and I was commissioned to accompany them as surveillant. Among the half-dozen happened to be a certain Jean Baptiste van den Houten, a most ponderous young flamand, not tall, but even now, at the early age of sixteen, possessing a breadth and depth of personal development truly national. It chanced that Jean was the first lad to step into the boat. He stumbled, rolled to one side. The boat revolted at his weight, and capsized. Vandenhuten sank like lead, rose, sank again. My coat and waistcoat were off in an instant. I had not been brought up at Eton, and boated, and bathed, and swam there ten long years for nothing. It was a natural and easy act for me to leap to the rescue. The lads and the boatmen yelled. They thought there would be two deaths by drowning instead of one. But as Jean rose third time, I clutched him by one leg and the collar, and in three minutes more both he and I were safe landed. To speak heaven's truth, 
my merit in the action was small indeed, for I had run no risk, and subsequently did not even catch cold from the wetting. But when M. and Madame Vandenhuten, of whom Jean Baptist was the sole hope, came to hear of the exploit, they seemed to think I had evinced a bravery and devotion which no thanks could sufficiently repay. Madame, in particular, was certain I must have dearly loved their sweet son, or I would not thus have hazarded my own life to save his. Monsieur, an honest-looking, though phlegmatic man, said very little, but he would not suffer me to leave the room, till I had promised that in case I ever stood in need of help, I would, by applying to him, give him a chance of discharging the obligation under which he affirmed I had laid him. These words, then, were my glimmer of light. It was here I found my sole outlet, and in truth, though the cold light roused, it did not cheer me, nor did the outlet seem such as I should like to pass through. Right, I had none to M. van den Guten's good offices. It was not on the ground of merit I could apply to him. No, I must stand on that of necessity. I had no work. I wanted work. My best chance of obtaining it lay in securing his recommendation. This, I knew, could be had by asking for it. Not to ask, because the request revolted my pride and contradicted my habits, would, I felt, be an indulgence of false and indolent fastidiousness. I might repent the omission all my life. I would not then be guilty of it. That evening I went to M. van den Houten's. But I had bent the bow and adjusted the shaft in vain. The string broke. I rang the bell at the great door. It was a large, handsome house in an expensive part of the town. A manservant opened. I asked for M. van den Houten. M. van den Houten and family were all out of town, gone to Ostend, did not know when they would be back. I left my card and retraced my steps. End of chapter 21